so as they were singing that, um, I was thinking about Cubans. One thing specifically that I was thinking about was just the level of lostness in the world. the level of violence in our community. So, if anybody ever follows the Cleveland page, you are fully aware that there's always a lot of bodies and crime that hits that page. And I was sharing with a buddy of mine, so I was like, what's so interesting, I was talking to this guy, I think, well, I won't say his name, but I was talking to a buddy of mine who was a pastor down in Acre, and we were talking about the, the uniqueness of true urban church plants and ministries. But then also, when you're, when you're not like an, an outskirt-type outskirt church, but actually in like the thick of it. And I was sharing with him, I said, and what's more burdensome, and what's more a constant battle that me and my wife have to fight, when we talk about ministry, is the fact that I can be, I, I live in Hub, I live on 82nd. And so I can be up at night hearing the gunshots and then hit the news, hit Cleveland page in the morning and see what actually was taking place when I heard those gunshots. And it adds kind of to that level of like, God, what in the world? <laughs> up at night saying, God, please tell me. What are we going to do to put a dent in some of this stuff? And that, and that question is not one that I typically ask because I'm like super encouraged to them. It's typically like a guy really like, what are, what, are, what are we actually going to do? And as they were singing that song, I was just reflecting on those thoughts of like, no matter how bad it is, no matter how dark it may be, at the end of the day, the battle of Jesus won. Yeah, 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 yeah. You may get punched a lot. Yeah, right. You may have some aches and bruises, but at the end of the day, God isn't losing this battle. He's not. He's not. And the only thing that we can do is just listen to our corner. No boxer. Just listen to our corner. Listen to our corner man who will tell us what to do, where to go, how to move, what not to move, how to adapt, read the signs, see what they're doing, adjust to what they're doing. So as the enemy fights, we fight back by watching him, seeing what he's doing, and then listening to how the Father instructs us to defend against the attack of the enemy. And so I, that was just an encouragement for me this morning to remember that if God isn't going to lose. And if God can't lose, if we're on mission with him, we can't lose. Amen. And so, that was my encouragement. Father, I thank you for just always meeting a person where they're at, finding where they're burdened, finding where they're struggling, finding where they're suffering, finding where they're doubting, finding where they whatever. God, and having a unique way uh, if I can borrow from last week's message to enter into the narrative and remind them that you see them. God, you know what is going on. You are sovereign above all things. Nothing is catching you by surprise. You ain't waking up like, oh, shoot, missed that one. Yeah. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. God, you know what's up. And you're prepared and you got a plan. And so, God, I thank you that when we get doubtful, when we get dark, when we get 
uh, unsure, God, that you creep in and remind us, like, hey, I got you. And I'm fighting this battle, I'm fighting this war, it's not your job. It's not your job to figure out how to win. It's your job to be reminded that because you're in Christ, you've already won. And you're just going back into the war to help somebody else who doesn't know that they're a victor to remind them that it doesn't matter what punches they take, they already won. It doesn't matter how hard the fight may be, they've already won. And so, Father, I just thank you for that encouragement, God. I pray that you would increase in me as I decrease, God, in every word that goes forth from my mouth be yours and not mine. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What's up? Hi. How y'all doing? I'm just going to say this now just to get it out of the way. And my, I guess... If I, if I borrow from my mom, I was thinking about what time it out. If I borrow from my mom, <laughs> it was so funny last night, my mom, my mom was like, my son's a jerk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and, and she, she said I was a jerk because I always, always make the obvious statements. Like, I always scale the room, see the obvious, and when nobody else wants to say the obvious, I still say the obvious. I still say, like, Ma, you had a little bit too much to drink. Go sit down. <laughs> and if I borrow from that, I'll just go state the obvious. I thank y'all who didn't allow a holiday to stop y'all from showing up today to worship in Jesus. And so for you all, you still worthy. You still worthy. But you all say, listen, I'm going to eat later. <laughs> but let us go into the house of the Lord and worship him now. Yeah. Um, I thank you all. For those who are going to watch this later in the playback, I thank you too because you're watching. So I'm not necessarily coming down on you, but I'm just stating the obvious. Hey, listen, so today <laughs> we're going to continue in our series, uh, Identity. Right? And we're going to look today at Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26 uh, through verse 27. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and verse 27. And if you see me do something odd that you've never seen me do probably in a while, unless you're like talking to me on a one-on-one, you, you see me flipping actual pages. Um, I was telling my wife, I said, I know we young. Yeah. I know we, you know, we, we going to be young. I was like, but I'm kind of missing seeing Bibles in church. Yes. All right, that's, I'm trying to, I'm kind of missing seeing phones doing this. And I was like, I'm going to still put them on the screen for y'all, for sure. But I was like, it's still just something about flipping these here pages. It is. Now, for speed, I bookmarked. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I said, and I got a, a new Bible, because I'm about to, I haven't read the Bible through in the Christian Standard Bible, I'm starting to like that version. And so I was like, I'm about to read it through in this version. But, so I'm going to flip some of these. You're going to see me flip some of these pages. And so for you, I'm just going to say, get your old U version, tap, tap, whatever you got to do, <laughs> pull that up. It'll be on the screen, though. So that we don't have to be that, you know, that old school. You sit around like, amen when you got it, amen when you got it. And you sit around because you told them to go to a book they ain't never read and they ain't got it. And so you sit around for a minute. So we're going to avoid that by keeping it on the screen. <laughs> but we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1 
verse 26 and verse 27. Really, I'm lying. We're going to actually just look at verse 26. Okay. And it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so as promised, we're going to have this kind of deep theological look at what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. But, you have to wait till next week to actually get that. When we look at verse 27. Today I want to pick up actually, and this happens a lot. Um, Keone be like, tell me what you're going to be preaching of, right? And as, as their worship leader. And I'll be like, I can tell you, but it probably change. <laughs> because I'm, I always have in my head, I'm going to move this way, this way. And a lot of times what happens when you actually allow the text to speak is while you're studying, sometimes you realize, hold up, wait a minute. This is actually the direction I need to go with this first. And so I was like, hold on, before I get there, let me continue in this thought of God sees me, right? Because that's what we were talking about last week, right? Looking at Hagar and Sarah and seeing how God enters into our situation when we feel like nobody else sees us, nobody else understands. God enters that narrative and he says, listen, I see you. And so I pray that you guys were blessed by that last week. And today I want to look at just how God sees us, right? Because this is a critical application in any discussion about identity. If you remember, I said identity asks, answers the question, who am I, right? But in answering the question, who does God say I am, and how does God see me, his opinion should therefore begin to reign supreme over the typical way that we answer that question. Because the typical question that we ask about an identity is not who does God say that I am and how does God see me, but it's how do other people, who do other people say that I am and how do they see me? Like that's how a lot of us brace our entire identity on. And that's what creates what we talked about last week, this identity crisis. We have this identity crisis because culture is telling us to be something that we aren't. And if we want to be culturally acceptable, culturally fit in, we begin to try or mold or conform ourselves to the cultural standards, even though it's not really who we are. And so we're acting out one way to fit in, but we're feeling a completely different way on the inside. Yeah. And so we have this identity crisis, and we start to ask ourselves when nobody else is around, and the TV goes off, and the music is off, and everybody, and we're not playing games, and we're not out kicking, and we're not out having barbecue, but when we're by ourselves, we begin to ask the question, who actually am I? Who am I? And so I was thinking, because I'm a parent, and one of the things that drives me crazy as a parent is when you get to that place, and my wife is better at this than me, so I guess my kids drive me crazy with it and my wife, but in a good way. <laughs> because you get to that place where you've got to let your kids kind of like find themselves, and that means they start dressing themselves. And sometimes, the way they be looking, be like, they gonna think, I don't care about you. <laughs> they gonna talk about me, and they don't talk about you, they gonna talk about you, but they gonna really talk about me like, they let them go out the house like that. And I'll never forget this one time my son wanted to wear a tail. Y'all yes. remember, remember when he came to church? Yes. When we were at the old, remember? 
He wanted to wear a tape tail on top of that. What was this tape tail? You know when you open up a box, delivery box, and you got the tape hanging? He wanted to wear it. And he wore the tape tail to church. And it drove me crazy. It looked ridiculous. It looked ridiculous. But here's the thing though. It looked ridiculous to me. He did not care how it looked to me. He liked it. He liked it. And funny thing is, I remember being that child. Being that child in those days before you had to worry about how people thought about you, uh, spoke about you, you used to just be free. Free to express yourself however you so want to be free. I'm that little curly hair dude. I know I had lots of curly hair. Don't judge me. I had it. Okay? Something happened. This is what it is. Okay? <laughs> All right? But I remember when I wasn't concerned about how others will see me. I remember before when I used to dress a certain way before I was concerned about other people telling me that I dressed born like, you know, your husband and mine. You know, they used to always get on me. Y'all won't watch this, but make sure you show them this, right? They used to always get on me like, man, you dressed boring, right? And I used to be like, I, I like all black. <laughs> I, I like wearing thermos, right? I was a thug. We wore thermos and Tim's. What you talking about? <laughs> In the summertime. Yeah, triple fat goose with the fur. Over, uh, but, right, I remember the days when, when, when you were shopping, you wasn't concerned about picking the outfit that would get the most likes on social media. All right. When you would take pictures and you ain't take 30 of them because you had to make sure you get the right one that would show all the right angles and you can get the most likes on social media. Right? I remember those days before uh, we were hijacked by cultural acceptance. Oh, and so as ugly as that tale was, that little then two year old boy. It was so precious to actually watch him shred his little tail. He wore for actually a couple days before the stickiness wore off. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but it was so precious to watch because I knew that one day that innocence will be stolen. I knew that one day that innocence will be stolen by culture's opinion. And that one day when he wear that top, that tail, somebody will be like, well, you got a tail on for that ugly, and he will take that tail off and never wear it again. Right? And that's just the reality. Right? That, but here's the thing. But if we could erase all the things that the culture said is acceptable, right? If we could go back and think about the jobs that we took, because we wanted to have a job that the culture said was accessible, the careers that we chose, right, the people we dated. If we can go back to those days before our identity was perverted and ask this question, who was I? Because we, we, we and, 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 and this is, to be honest, a lot of, I'm getting, I'm 36, so I'm getting close, but, but a lot of, um, like, midlife stuff is really just about you re-asking the question, who am I? And looking at your life and compared to what you thought you were going to be, and then saying, what did I miss out on? Right? And so, you see me, I don't know men, how much men have these things, but I think I probably have like a male version of it. Right? You know, I had my bike, didn't have my bike, then I was like, hey, I want my bike back. So I got a bike. Right? I do a whole lot of stuff compared to my wife because she's married to me. But I do a whole lot of stuff like, I remember when I used to like that. I'm about to do it. <laughs> And my wife like, what? I'm like, I mean, I, 
I even thought about becoming a police officer like four years ago because I was like, I remember wanting to be a cop. <laughs> I was like, I could do it. Okay. 
and it creates this tension that is very hard. And sometimes I fumble and sometimes other people fumble and your peers will fumble that rock. And the problem is that because we fumble that rock, many of us now see, think that God sees us the way that others have saw you. And so you answer that question, and I'm messed up, I'm unrighteous. Or that one saying, I, I never really understood why believers like to say this. I mean, I know why they do this, but I, it just doesn't make sense. I'm just a sinner. That's how you think God sees you, saint? Right? Is that where you want to start your position with God at? You accepted Christ. Believe you, the Holy Spirit filled, baptized, and all the speaking tongues and everything else that they be saying. And then the, and the super charismatic, I don't even know how they do it. Baptized with the Holy Ghost fire and all of that, right? You've been all of that. But you still start your story off, I'm just a sinner. Why? Well, I'm going somewhere if you follow me. Because remember what I said earlier? We don't go back far enough when we ask a question. We don't go back to our and so in answering the question, how does God see me, we have to make sure that we're going back far enough. We have to stop answering that question based on the things that we've done all the time. But because, uh, because sometimes that begins to add to this feeling of self-worthlessness. Right? But if we want to know how God sees us, we need to begin to answer that question beyond by going beyond our own perversions. What do I mean? Well, there was a time when how God saw mankind our humankind, I think, is the more acceptable way to say it now. Humankind could not be mistaken. <laughs> and that time was before the fall. Before our sin nature began to dictate our movements. See, if you remember, Eve and Adam, they dwelt in the presence of God. He walked with them. He talked with them. Credit, I'm going to hit it in a minute. Credit hitting at it on Thursday on worship night. right? But, but God is light. And God bust on the scene in the midst of darkness. And, and he said, let there be light. But he wasn't no moon that nothing created because he was the light. His presence entered into the soul. God is present on earth. With Adam and Eve walking. Right? The Bible says, chilling and cool in the car. And so he's chilling with them. They knew who they were. They knew the relationship they had with them. They had no mistaken understanding of how God felt about them because kind of like a kid that don't know how their parents, you just go and be like, do you love me? It's a question I asked my daughter, who's just a teenager, my bitch, 16-year-old, I'm 15, 16, about to be 16. I'm like, you love me? You sure? You don't be acting like it sometimes, right? But then you just ask that question. And so they knew how God felt about them. Until when? Until they ate food and well, until they ate fruit and failed. What happened the moment they ate the fruit and failed? Well, they saw he was naked, became shameful, covered themselves, and then hid themselves from God. And ever since that moment, we have been hiding ourselves from God, and it has created confusion to us. They hid from God because they were ashamed. They hid from God, maybe rightfully in some sense, right? But they, had, they forgot that though they made a mistake, though they did something he told them not to do, they, 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 they connected that with the fact that he didn't love them no more, and so they further need that they need to hide from him, they don't want to be in his presence no more. And that began to be, and then we inherited that sin nature. And then now we carry out that same in a magnified level. Right? We don't even, when we do things and because we've done things and live lives the way, as believers, as unbelievers, whatever it is, we think that, man, man, I gotta hide from God. God sees me as this shameful, disgraceful person who's just jacking up his name. But that's not the truth. 
right? That's not the truth. And so I'm here this morning to talk about that. I'm here this morning to take us back far enough, right? See, we can't start our understanding of how God sees us with anything post-fall, okay. right? To understand how God truly sees us, we must not start the story post-fall, but pre-fall. And that's what we're going to do today. Because too often we have faulty answers because we have faulty starting points. Okay. Right? It's that whole conversation. I'll go here. It's that whole conversation about slavery talk in school. Right? Right? How do we as black people find value in ourselves if all, all through our educational life we've heard our stories start with slavery? Can't find so now you're trying to find value in your history, but all you can think about is, oh, it's just nothing. And then eventually somebody let me be something. So if, if they don't want me to be nothing again, then I won't be nothing. You can't find value in that. Right? right? You can't find value in that because the starting point doesn't allow it. Right? So this is why, like, historians like Thomas Smith, they would say things like it's critical for black people uh, 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 to be provided an abundant amount of history to show that at the earliest period known to them, they were cultivated intelligent, having kingdom arts manufacturers, and that this specific event of slavery uh, of the black race was more of a modern origin. Or, to a more famous guy, Marcus Garvey, he finds it critical to say what? Black man, you were once great. You should be great again. A reminder that your story doesn't start there, that there was something before this crisis. That's right. Come on. right? The point is that we have uh, to move past this crisis event in time that begins to define how we are if we desire to see ourselves as God sees us. And this is true. Right? We will never see our worth and value uh, if we keep looking at how God sees us starting with the post-fall. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that God stop loving us because we failed. So we need to look back to before we failed. What I'm saying is when we failed, we started seeing God's love through 14 lenses. Right, right. Right? So for the rest of the time this morning, we're going to look quickly at four key things in creation that's going to, which is pre-fall, by the way, that's going to speak to the fact of how God sees us. Not just spoiler, he sees us as significant, valuable, and have worth. Despite what anybody else sees, God says, you're special, and you have value. Right? And so we're going to look at this. And I'm looking at the creation account because that's like the beginning. Right? Alright, so first, the creation account shows that we are special and that we have value because we were created last. We were created last. And I know they're like, what that means? <laughs> right? Last ain't good. <laughs> and so, <laughs> if you look at this in isolation, it doesn't make sense. But when you take the entire creation account into thought, it actually begins to show the significance. See, when you look at the entire creation narrative, what you see is an order of significance with human life as the pinnacle. Right? And so I like reading. And so there's a guy named Richard Eberbach, and he has a book called Reading Genesis, uh, an Evangelical Conversation. And then there's another guy named Kenneth Matthew, who's the author of the New American Commentary on Genesis. And they pick up this essential point. And they begin to explain that being created last speaks to the value that God sees in us. And here's why. Because Genesis 1 opens up in verse 2 saying what? Saying that the earth was formless, empty, and dark. And it covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. Now, this description speaks to what? The earth being inhabitable and unproductive. And so what Matthew and Averbach said, Averbach says is that all creation days are designed to eliminate those conditions. 
God comes on the scene in the beginning to create. And the earth was void, empty, and dark. Everything God did after that was to remedy those conditions. Now, if you're anything like me, and I always say, guys, a good Bible reader asks really good questions. When you learn to ask, like, really good questions, your Bible reading and study is going to just start jumping off the page. Because once you ask the question, your mind is going to make you try to find that answer. Right? And so when you learn to ask really good questions, you start to find some really dope answers. And so I'm looking at this, and I said, well, it's God. He don't need earth. Right. Right? Right. So why do he need to remedy the problem to begin with? Who he remedying the problem for? Why does he need to fix a condition that he don't need? So I began to think about that, and the obvious answer is what? Us. Us. Right? God is remedying, remedying this condition for us. Because the earth is not inhabitable for us. But God is trying to create a home for us. Look at verse 14. He says, Let there be light and the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And they will serve as signs for seasons and for days and for years. Well, God don't need signs of seasons. <laughs> God don't, he, inter, he eternal. He don't mind. I still don't know what David is. <laughs> God don't need none of that. Who needs that? We do. We do. Right? God didn't need it. He got a home. We needed it. Right? And so when you begin to study the light and the sun and the plants and the animals and how all of those things benefit who? Us. You quickly begin to see that God was preparing the whole world so that humankind, you and I, will have a suitable dwelling place. Therefore, if everything he was doing was so that we would have a suitable dwelling place. Now, okay, let me, let me, I always got to do this because I, I, you know, I always tell you, I always got, I always got, I got like real theological hitters in my group. And so I always got to clarify something so I don't get the message. Like, hey, this, that was not the only reason. Okay? So I want to be clear on that. We're talking about in this narrative, this framework. Alright? God is, God is about himself and glorifying and us glorifying him. Okay? Alright. The cosmos declare his glory and his name. Right? And the animals, we talked about that, right? In Romans chapter 1, what, uh, what, what can be known about God can be seen. His, his, his attributes, invisible, invisible, in his creation. Right? When the Bible talks about us having that you'll see them use these, these, these analogies like uh, us being able to see. Like if you can hear, what makes you think God can't hear, right? And so there's more to the story here, right? But the point that I'm making is that God didn't need none of that. <laughs> we did, right? And so God was preparing the world for us. And so he had to make us last. Because if he made us first, we ain't got no sunlight. I don't know about y'all, but vitamin D is good for you. Right? If he made us last, we ain't got no vegetation. Not because I'm vegan, but because they give me, like, what's that stuff they put out? Carbon dioxide or something? Or oxygen. <laughs> we put out, and then they get oxygen. Right? I like meat, so he gave me animals. Amen. Oh, I'm sorry, animal lovers. I'll talk to you guys in a minute. But we're the pinnacle. Next to shore. We're the pinnacle of creation. And so when we look at creation as a whole, you see the significance of us being created last. 
We're created last because we're the focus. God took time to prepare our inhabitants. Right? And this is also dope because when he finished with us, that's when he rested. Right? right? He didn't rest before that. He rested when he finished. Why did he rest after us? Because we were the whole focus to begin with. There was nothing else after us. He created everything, and then he said, nah, I put my people there. Cool. It's all good. I'm about to chill. We were the final piece to remedying the formless, empty, and dark conditions. By the way, speaking of dark, it's kind of ironic that God comes on the scene and the first way he remedies darkness is by his presence. Thank you, God. Right? Let there be light. And light is shone. They'll tell you shone. They'll tell you where it came from. Well, I'll tell you where it came from. It came from God. Don't believe me? Revelation 22, 5. Right? After God says he'll create a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible says this, and a new Eden, I don't know if you guys ever ever followed the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Yeah. I don't know if you ever seen that that it's so many it's so many. Y'all need to get into biblical theology. I got heard. Yeah. And the reason y'all need to get into biblical theology is because while I love systematic theology, it has a lot of problems. Yeah. It creates more problems for a lot of people because when you're talking about systematic theology. It has to fit in the system. So even when you're reading something that you're like, I don't think that rock in that system, if you don't put it in that system, the whole thing comes tumbling down. It's jingling, right? And so, so many people are stuck in some ways of thinking because they're trying to follow this system. But listen, that system needs to really be following biblical theology. What is the difference between systematic theology and biblical theology? Well, biblical theology traces a thing from the beginning all the way through. And wherever the theme falls off somewhere different, it keeps tracing it that way. What systematic theology does is it just takes my premise and it's going to fit everywhere else. I'm going to show you that in a minute, how this works. But here's the thing. When you understand biblical theology and you read Genesis all the way through, back to Revelation, you see this crazy thing about restoring Eden. Period. From, from the moment the relationship was severed in Eden, the entire story... Is about God trying to get us back to Eden. And how do I know that? Because at the end, in Revelation, when he creates a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible says, and Eden was there. And guess what else was there? That tree that we ain't allowed to eat from no more. Right? All the stuff that we lost in Eden, when we, at the end of it, we get it back. Back in his presence. And guess what else is happening in his presence? Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 is happening because it said night will be no more. People will not need the lamp or a lamp or the light or the sun because the Lord God will give them light. The Bible is very beautiful when we stop butchering it and actually read it for what it's worth. But God's way of remedying this darkness is himself. Well, if the narrative is all about remedying the condition, and there's also a condition of darkness, and God went and chilled, and he created us, well, that starts to speak to some significance. Because then he gave us his image and his likeness. And so when I'm reading that, what that tells me is that we were also the remedy for the darkness in the world. That God had planned to use us to continue to remedy the darkness that exists in the world. And that's significant. Because listen, I don't know about you, but I don't give people I don't value very precious tasks. <laughs> I give my really most treasure tasks to the people that I value the most. 
Because I need to trust them in order to get it done. And the fact that God has entrusted us with the task of being his agent to deal with the darkness in this world speaks to the fact that even when you don't feel that you have significance, your significance is great. The world may not appreciate it, by the way, because they don't want you pushing back darkness. But we're talking about getting free from their thoughts anyway, right? So we're going back to God. And so God says, hey, bro, I'm a light pusher. Amen. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Oh my. Anyway. I got it. Verse half of one. Listen. But we're God's room plan to remedy darkness. If I slow down, I might actually be able to say that word right. If you read Matthew chapter 5, what's the Bible say? We are what? Lights on a hill. Right? And we see this. God using people. From Abraham to start a uh, to start a, a, a nation of people who would go and make God's name known to all the other nations, and then they jacked it up. So Jesus comes, but then Jesus commissions us to do what? Go preach the gospel to all other nations. Why? For salvation, right? I mean, it's very clear that God is using us, and He sees value in us, and He sees us as significant. Thank you, Jesus. God prepared an entire world for us. If y'all don't think that matters, let's look at point two. The creation account shows that we are special and that we have value because everything else created by God was impersonal except us. Everything else created by God was impersonal except us. Somebody say except me. Except me. Come on now. And we see this drastic change from divine command to divine workmanship. Right? All before us, God said, let there be light. When he got to the animals and the land, he said, let the earth bring forth, right? Everything else was about a command. Let it be light. Let it start. Put the expanse in the sky. Let the earth come. And it was. What the Bible says, and it was. Right, right. He commanded it, and it was. Because he can do that. He's God. But then when he got to us, he didn't say let there or let the earth. He said, let us make Everything else came into existence by God's divine command, but when it came to you and I, there was direct involvement and contemplation. Okay, you didn't get it. Yeah. You don't pick up the phone for everybody. Some people just get a text. All right, let me break it down for the church folks, right? Some people you say you're going to pray for, and others you go to and pray with. I'm not saying it's good or bad. By the way, the person that you don't go to and pray with don't mean that they're not important. It just means that there's some people that no matter what you're doing, if they need you, they need you know I'm coming to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? No matter and, and, and the wives and husbands, they just be like, listen, that person called this day called. <laughs> and they are like my wife, listen, if her daddy called, I I don't, I don't if, hey, anniversary on the airplane. Hey man, you gotta turn this plane around, bro. <laughs> You guys turn, listen, man, turn, please turn this plane around so I don't have to hear this for the next six hours of this flight. <laughs> There's some people that matter that much that you're dropping everything for. Yeah. You can't, you can't, I can't deal with you from, I gotta come and touch you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's because they mean so much to you. And with God, it's no different. Right? He spoke everything else. But when we get to that detailed narrative in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 6, it tells us that the Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed his breath into the light of his nostrils, and man became a living being. To make it plain, God got dirty for us. 
And if you think that it was just about Adam and Eve, he got dirty again 2,000 plus years ago. When he came into this world, because he loved you so much, he saw so much value in you, that he came and got dirty again. Came through a birth canal, got spit on, got beat, carried the cross, hung on the cross. He did it all for you. Because he knew he couldn't just command your righteousness. <laughs> right? He decided, I'll compel it by my love for you. And so I'm going to come and get personal with this thing called salvation. But listen, you don't see that happen with no other sea creatures or air creatures or land creatures. Right? No. But here's the question. What makes us different? Because the animals in the land, at least, they came from dirt too. Right? So what makes mankind, what makes the naturalistic worldview wrong? Because we all used to, they say, listen, we all come from the end. Dirt's dirt. But my, I don't know, my dirt has something different. <laughs> Well, here's what makes it different. is that God breathed his breath into us. Amen. And we became a living Amen. being. Yeah. We matter above all other God's creation. Pause for a second. Let's get our minds right. I know we got a lot of animal lovers in here, but let's be some, let's talk reality. They are not me. An animal is an animal. God loves them, yes. But he loves me more. <laughs> right? You don't believe me? Being harsh, Luke 12, 7 and 6. <laughs> I mean, 6 and 7. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet none of them is forgotten in God's sight? Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. That's an animal. <laughs> right? So Jesus is making that connection. You matter more than all my other creation. Right? Period. Love it or hate it. You matter more than all my other creation. Thank you, God. I know my creation sucks sometimes, so you gotta find your comfort in the cat. But <laughs> Wow. Jesus. Don't come for me. No, I'm just <laughs> you got a cat. <laughs> but no, but hear what I'm trying to say. It's not that the cat can't comfort you. Right. But for and, and the, but some people that is their comfort. That's a problem for us. That's an indictment on us. Where in the world are we at to love on our brothers and sisters who need us? That the only place they can find comfort in is an animal, which is fine. But an animal should be like an addition, not the primary source of the comfort. Yeah. Okay. That's real. And the only reason I said that is because I, I gotta deal. I gotta deal. With this whole idea, because I am not an evolved animal. Okay. Okay? I am created by God in his likeness, in his image. Me and them apes and Lucy and all of them ain't the same. Don't believe me? Just in one, 21. Now, if you got a biblical worldview, you're going to argue me about this. Cool, email me. Let's go live, talk about it. God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kind. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. Pay attention to this its kind piece, right? In Genesis 1, 24, then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kind, livestock, creatures that crawl in the wildlife of the earth according to their kind. And then when he got to human beings, he did not say, let us create them and name all these animals and say, according to their kind. He said, let us make them an our image. Yeah. I don't have no other kind but God. Come on! Come on! I'm not involved in eight. I'm not going to reincarnate this cat. Doesn't exist. That's a kind. I ain't it. <laughs> right? 
only with mankind was such personal care taken to create it. And if you think I'm just going on a soapbox there, that matters because the naturalistic worldview says you don't have any significance. You're just a ball of clay. By accident, by the way. No purpose, no nothing. Nobody made you. You just so happen to be. Really, you can't, since you came from the fishes and the tadpoles and the animals, really, they, they low-key, your God, they low-key higher than you. Matter of fact, Peter's back home. Peter Singer, no, I'm not going to work. Well, I'm going to work. Um, yeah, I'm going to Peter Singer, professor at Harvard in bioethics, made this comment. He said that, a, that an unborn child in the womb of a woman and a newborn, because they had not yet come to personhood or adulthood, are lower than animals. That's naturalism. If you want to follow naturalism, if you want to be nothing, go ahead. But I'm going to go ahead and keep rocking out with Jesus, keep rocking out with God, who tells me, no, 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 no. You're not just a ball of clay. You're not just this, this piece of dirt. I didn't come back to die for dirt. Right, right, right. Only with mankind was such personal care taken to create us. Thank you, Jesus. I'm just talking about clay. Isaiah depicts this picture in Isaiah 64, 8. He says, yet, Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the powder. We are the work of your hands. And I don't know why every time I think about that, if, if I don't know how old everybody is in here, but the, the scene that, who knows the scene that goes into my head? What movie do I think about when I think about the clay and the powder? Ghost. Ghost. That is literally what goes to my head. I don't know why, because that is like, should be the last thing I think about that. You know what I mean? But like, God, but that's what I just think about that, that ghost movie back when they filmed, was kind of filming, so I had this orange tint to it, and, and they rocking and, and they making this clay thing, and I'm like, yo, that's what God was doing to me. Like, that's personal. That's care. He didn't do that with nothing else. No birdies. No sharkies. I'm not going to say dogs because we got a lot of dogs lovers here. Let me do something else. No squirrels. <laughs> we got no gophers. <laughs> These animals y'all like really like. No mice. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But listen, if you're sitting here and you're saying to yourself, yeah, but that was Adam. That was Eve. We come to a woman now. But listen. If you dare think that God still isn't taking personal care in our creation, thank you, God. He reminds you of what David said in Psalms 139, 13, and 14. He said, For if it was you who created my inward parts, you who created my inward parts, he's talking to God, by the way. For it was you who created my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Yeah, reproductive stuff and all that stuff is working, and that's science, and God made all that work and all that. But then God wants us to be very clear, like, yeah, I know I put some stuff in place, but don't get it confused. I'm knitting you inside of that womb. I'm taking my time to put you together. Then David says, I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Y'all would know it in any other translation other than the CSB. as fearfully and wonderfully made. This was David, not Adam, not Eve. David clearly didn't think God's personal care and his creation stopped with Adam and Eve. David clearly, and God allowed it to be in his word, clearly believed it to be that even now with you, with you, Santina, that baby that's in your womb, God is knitting that child together purposely, perfectly, wonderfully. Thank you. Thank you, God. 
And that's why he's the only one who can tell us our worth. That's why he's the only one who can tell us our value. Because he's saying, yo, I know, uh, I know, I know Stephen says you ain't nothing, but he don't know the type of stitching that I use for you. And I didn't go to Family Dollar and get that little quick kick. God like, man, I went, I went so, so wherever you get the expensive stuff from. God like, I went there. Right? I'm thinking about them LeBron after he won the championship. That brother got uh, uh, his shoe gold. They stitched his shoe. God up there stitching you and knitting you together with precious stones and that and stuff. <laughs> if you don't believe me, go back and read the Old Testament. Man, no priest. You read it and you be like, it's stone here. Man, them priests had multi-million dollar robes in our day. <laughs> like, them people walking around with some value on their back. I ain't never seen God put nothing together or make plans for nothing to be put together that was cheap. Yeah. Look at the temple. That's real. Right. They didn't just put gold in there because they like gold. God said, put a gold, gold here. <laughs> like, I want to find the best metals and the best Reach everything, whatever those things are called, and that's what you make my stuff out of. Thank and if you don't, thank you, God. Old Testament, you know what he did. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's how he treat a building, if that's how he treat a road, where in the world do you think he did when he did it? You together. You are valuable. You. Okay. From that alone, every human being, despite who doesn't see you as special, said identify that you are special above all other things. This blank canvas. And God created this masterpiece and, and he loves it and it's perfect, right? Y'all about to go to that sipping paint, right? The 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 um the non-alcoholic sipping paint. And um and how many of y'all gonna keep whatever that thing you're gonna make on that canvas? <laughs> I don't know what it's going to look like. But how many of y'all, listen, we have, if you've ever been to our house, we have no hanging pictures in our house. Help us. <laughs> we have, you, you an interior decorator for free. Come through. <laughs> but listen, we have no hanging pictures in our house but two. And you know what those two pictures are? The two pictures we painted at a sipping pack. <laughs> hey, they may not be tight to you, but I created it. Anything I created, I'm like, that's cold. You may walk in like, that's ugly. I'll be like, I made it. It's cold. You don't need to tell me what it looked like. I made it. And that's how God is looking at you. He's looking at Tank like, you can't, you can't tell her after her work. I, I tell her her work. The coach can't tell you, you know, it may look like a mess to you, but I know I made that mess that looked like a mess to you. It's a masterpiece to me. And we understand how important this is because our kids draw some mess and we put it on our refrigerator. And they praise it. And they give it to us. My son on Father's Day, he gave me his little scribble card. And he was so excited to give it to me because he, 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 he was good to him. Look, Daddy, I got full card. Three lines. Beautiful. <laughs> Going right back to Ephesians chapter 2. You were God's handiwork. Yeah. Right? And here's the word. Created. Created. All right, third thing. The, the creation account shows that we are special and that we have value is we were created with care. Now, I know that may sound like the same thing, but there's a difference here. Because God didn't just say, let's make. He said, let us make. Now, 
If you don't know what this is, I'm about to just hit it with you. We are the only creation of God when he involved others. Okay. He said, let us. Now, many of you, if you've been around church for any amount of time, and you've been reading your systematic theology books, <laughs> you would be fully aware that how this verse is explained is that the us, I'm going there, Ray, that the us, that the us refers to God in his triune nature. Hear me out. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we are Trinitarian, right? We believe that according to the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear ye, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We are monotheistic. We believe in one God, but we are Trinitarian. And so we believe in one God, but we believe that that one God exists in three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons. Okay? Now, I'm not about to defend the Trinity here. Shameless plug, go to our YouTube page. I did a two-hour teaching on it. Go watch that all day long, and I'll give you, and you hear every verse in the world that supports the Trinity. So I'm not about to defend the Trinity here. We're going to assume the Trinity here. But here's the problem. I can't assume it in this verse. Because while that's how we have traditionally been told that this verse, what it means, I'm going to argue that there is no way in biblical worldview history that the people that heard this narrative thought that. And now hear me out. I'm not saying that we can't see that present here. Right? On a slide of scriptures, uh, Job 33, verse 4. Job says what? The Spirit of the Lord created me and breathed life into me. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. The Bible says that, uh, that Jesus created all things and all things were created by him. And nothing that was made was, and everything that was made was made by him. And nothing that was not made was not made by him. Right? That's what it says. Right? Yep. <laughs> I don't know. Genesis chapter 1 says what? God created. Job, it's not up here right now, but Job 38, I'll hit it in a minute. Job 38 verse 6, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it later, says what? When God was checking Job, hey, listen, who was there when I created? And so he's making this assumption that God, like, I'm the only one that created anything. But now we have all of these other Bible passages that says, well, the Spirit of God created. Then you got a modern Bible passage that says that, 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 that Jesus created. Well, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit. And so I'm not saying that the Trinity was not involved in creation. What I am saying is that this verse ain't talking about the Trinity, though. And that when Jesus, and here's the reason why, here's the reason why, this whole idea of this verse talking about the Trinity did not come into play until the church had to respond to the heretics who were coming against God's divine nature. So as a response, they begin to read back into. And the reason they were able to read back into is because as a New Testament believer, I understand all of this stuff. I got all of this information. Right? But the, but, 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 but the but Jews, they didn't, Jesus wasn't here yet. They don't know nothing about this yet. Right? When Moses was pinning this and reading it on the mountains and stuff. Right? So they not hearing nothing about no trinity. They actually heard something when they said this here. And I'm going to tell you what they heard. Ah, I'm going to tell you. For the sake of God, this is what they heard. This is my view. We'll have to hold to it. It's, 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 I think it's right, though. <laughs> Here's what we have to remember. The, 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 the Israelites, when they're hearing this, they were coming out of polytheistic Egyptian culture. Coming out of a poly... And listen... People today that understand monotheistic, when they hear her talk about the Trinity, they still can't, they still be like, that just sounds like polytheism to me. Right? So how can a creation narrative 
meant to depict God as the creator being narrated that the original audience could hear this three though that's distinct. No, they were all they would hear is polytheism. There is no way the original audience would have got from that one God. No way. Because they're coming out of polytheistic culture. Right? And so the growing influence or the growing position by many Hebrew scholars, by the way, Hebrew scholars, right? You can't go to your Greek scholar and take what he says over your Hebrew scholar. Because he's a Greek scholar, right? A Hebrew scholar is who you need to be reading if you want to get correct information about Hebrew culture. An ancient Near Eastern scholar is who you want to be reading if you want to understand ancient Near East culture, right? I'm not saying our Greek scholars aren't smart. I'm just saying go to know Greek. Amen. This is why Dr. Michael Heiser refuses to debate Dr. James White. He's like, he's not even on my level. He's like, I'm not going to argue with him about Greek, but he definitely ain't about to come teach me nothing about Hebrew. I've been studying this for 30 years. They like, who's Dr. Michael Go research But guess what? This is also the Jewish understanding of this passage. Let us is referring to what is called the divine council. They're like, what the divine council? What is he talking about? Well, in summary, this is how it goes. Right? We understand this word Elohim to be what? God. That's how we understand it. That is not how the ancient Near Eastern culture understood the word Elohim. To them, Elohim was a word that they used for any disembodied figure. Any disembodied figure. That's why when, when Saul went and summoned Samuel by the medium when he wasn't supposed to, if you go read that text, when that spirit came forth, the Bible calls it Elohim. Why? Because they only, they, Elohim was a generic word for anything that was spiritual. Right? And now God is the most high Elohim. Meaning he is the creator of all other Elohims, right? So this is how the, the, the culture would have understood this, right? And so when they hear let us, they're considering, oh, God was chopping it up with what they would call the divine counter or those angels that were part of this intercourse. And listen, and I know this may seem, this is heavy, but listen, it's been in front of you the entire time you've been reading the Bible, but because systematic theology won't let you think like that, you miss it. Psalm 82 verse 1. The Bible says what? God stands in the divine assembly in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. What gods? Well, this is why you got Hebrew Israelites and Kemetic scientists and black nationalist people and all and Christians running around saying we're gods. And they start quoting what? Verse 6. I said you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die that man. You will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Well, let's take the context here. Where is God standing at? In the divine assembly, amongst the gods, pronouncing judgment on who? The gods. <laughs> right? You're a son of the most high. You'll die like humans. Well, humans can't die like humans. They're human. Right? And you will fall like every other ruler. Now, there's deep stuff here that I can't hit. But if you just go YouTube, Michael Heiser, uh, Divine Assembly, I mean, Council, or go get his book, Supernatural, or if you got any, like, exegetical uh, anchor bell, Bible study, commentary, anything, they'll begin to break this down for you. I'll be here all day if I do it. But the point is, this is the Divine Council. It's right here in the Bible. All right, you, you know, you know, you're not convinced yet. Let me take you to one more thing. Isaiah chapter 6. Y'all know this verse. It opens up. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on high in lo and, and, and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim, I mean, seraphim were standing above him. They had six wings. They were, they were, uh, with two, they were covered with faces. And two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. 
scary. <laughs> but notice where this is taking place at. In the throne room of God. Who's present? Angels. Now keep that setting in your mind and drop down to verse 8. Then I heard the verse of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? us. Let us make. Who will go for us? Now remember the setting. It's God and angels. Now, because we understand the Trinity, some people will read back into there the Trinity. But Isaiah wasn't talking about no Trinity. Isaiah told you exactly who he saw. And who did he see? God and some angels. And so when he's retelling the story, he ain't saying God, the Spirit, and Jesus said that us. He's referring to what was happening in that throne room. Them sheriff riding around with the scroll on his tongue. Talking about who going to eat. He said, no, they, they ain't talking about us. Right? It's, it's all throughout the Bible. Job chapter 1. Where does the, it opens up telling you what? That when the sons of God went to meet with God, Satan came with them. God got counsel. Now, not counsel like we got counsel. God don't consult nobody for nothing he want to do. But he do just take Sometimes he just share a little bit. And he got to share because what are angels? They're his messengers. They're carrying out his message in the supernatural world. So they, he let them know what I'm doing. And so they sit up there like, so this is how I imagine that happened. Oh, God, everything created cool, right? Yup. Yeah. Sun, moon, stars, all right. Water separated. They ain't going to just be birthed into water. Cool, that's dope. All right. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, some, some, some vegetation. Ooh, a little bird. Okay, cool. Yo, got the animals. Okay, yo, yo, yo. All right, now, man, I got now my people. And what can I do to make them special? Hey, yo, Mike, I got it. We gonna make them in our image. And then he went and formed us. Right? Now, whether you agree with that, disagree with it, don't even matter. I just couldn't skip over that and not teach that. <laughs> Because whether you want to hold to a Trinitarian view of this verse, or whether you want to hold to what I think is the more accurate view of this verse, it doesn't matter. Either way, God deliberated with either himself or some angels about creating you. Nobody else. Now, let me explain. I said all I have to say this. When you got to make an important decision, do you make it on your own, or do you hit up somebody? You should. I hope we all hit people up. Y'all not just out here making isolated decisions, are you? <laughs> <laughs> the world like, yeah, hey, you can keep out your business. But the point is, he didn't deliberate with nothing else, nobody else, when he was creating anything else. But because we're so special, he had conversations with either himself, I don't think that's right, or this divine counsel about you. That's the whole point that I want to make. God deliberated with his inner courts about creating you. So not only can we proclaim that God had crafted us, but if you want to go that far, you can be like, yo, he wanted to make sure I was so perfect, he even deliberated about me. <laughs> he made sure he made me right. <laughs> now,
Right, right, right. I'm, I'm dust. I'm fragile in comparison to even some of these animals that you said I'm, I'm higher than. But I am your most prized. Right? And I think that speaks to something. That speaks to the fact that, that it's, it's not outward splendor that gives you worth. It's not the amount of money you have that gives you worth. It's not how fly you look. It's not if you're the baddest, whatever, right? It's not it, it, how, how cold your spouse is. Now, it's cold to have a cold spouse. Like, it's dope that my wife's, you know, cold. But that don't give me worth, right? My value and my worth is in that God created me in his image. And it amazes me that in light of all that God created, it's us that are his most prized possession. Angels don't even have salvation. They messed up. God said, you're going to hell. It is what it is. Jude, Jude says some of them jokes were so bad, they still locked up. They, he said, I ain't even letting them out. They're going to get out in Revelation just to go into the lake of fire. Like, they ain't got no grace, no mercy. And we do far worse things to God than they do. And God down here like, I got you. I love you. Don't worry about it. I cover you. My blood got you. Why? An angel will crush me. What makes my fragile self so important, so valuable? And I don't know the answer other than God said I am. Yeah. All right, last thing. Let's get out of here. The creation account shows that we are special and that we have value because we're created with a unique identity. And, and the Bible and the dictionary defines unique as being one of a kind of like nothing else. And so God says what? Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And next week I'm going to spend an entire message explaining what that means. All right? Next week, we're going to look at what does being made in God's image and likeness actually mean. There's 20 views on this. I'm going to tell you one that's right. <laughs> in my opinion. Right? But I'm also going to show you how all the views actually speak to something. Right? And so we'll look at that. Right? But here's the thing. We're creating his image, and what that means is that we have value, intrinsic human value. It always amazes me that in Genesis 9, 6, after they come out of the boat, he gives them any animal for food. He said, just don't eat an animal with its life blood in it. The life blood is where the life is at. But then he goes on and he says, hey, by the way, if, 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 you, if you take a man, if you shed a human blood, by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. Like, like, God says, you can take the life of an animal, not for food. And be out here, that's, that's wicked and evil. That's still God's creation. But we're talking about consumption. Sorry, beings, but listen. But he says, let me explain something to you. You take the life of a human, I'm taking your life. And the only reason he gives for why capital punishment should be happening is because we're made in his image. He gives no other reason other than what? Because <laughs> they're made in my image. Their life matters. They're valuable. They're intrinsically. They don't, you don't have to think their life matters. But if you take their life because you don't think it matters, God's word, oh, there's some grace and stuff in there. But, but God, back then, I'm taking your life. Why? Because you, because he made my image. No other reason other than you're making you matter for no other reason than God says I made him in my image. What do you mean? And, and, and that speaks to again this, this idea of 
intrinsic human value. This is why when we was at our, our denominational conference, I'm closing, when we was at our denominational council in a room of three, four thousand pastors, and I got up and I challenged our doctrinal statement that says mankind was originally created in the image of God. And I got up and I said, yeah, I'm challenging we should change our doctrinal statement. Here's why. That word originally assumed that we're still not. <laughs> we weren't originally created in God's image and likeness. We're created <laughs> in God's image and likeness. And if you think sin means I'm no longer created in his image, then I, 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 I challenge you to go read Genesis chapter 9 after you read Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 3. Because Genesis chapter 9 is not pre-fall, it's post-fall. And so post-fall, with all this wickedness in the world, God still says, don't you touch him, he made in my image. And it's so important for us to remember that. Because if we can remember that you matter, that you are image bearer, that you are made in God's image, maybe we'll stop out, be out here just killing people. Yeah. Killing image bearers. Because we mad. Because we think we matter more than them. God's like, oh, y'all all matter to me. Because you're created in my image, and we need to begin to hold on to that. When, my, when somebody say something negative about you, I'm creating God's image. Somebody say, oh, you ugly, I'm creating God's image, so you must think God ugly. <laughs> somebody say, you a jerk, I'm creating God's image, right. so you must think God a jerk. Read the Old the New Testament, some of that stuff seemed a little jerky to me. <laughs> you know, Uriah ain't happy to die. <laughs> right? Whenever somebody is speaking negative, you just remind them, I'm created in God's image, so I have significance, I have worth, and I have value. God still sees you as having worth and value. Sure, sin marred that image. But God says sin can't steal your worth because sin didn't give it to you. And that's why he came and died for sin. He didn't die for a power dirt. He came and died for worth, for value. And this is why we're called to love our enemies. Because God's like, love your enemies because they're valuable to me. They matter to me. This is why we're called to love each other. Your worth is not connected to culture and understanding your worth doesn't begin at sin. It begins at Genesis. And if we're going to begin to answer the identity question, how does God see me, and who does God say I am, we must remind ourselves of what God revealed about us in the creation story. Is that good? Yeah. Is that help y'all? Yeah. Did that encourage y'all? Yeah. Uh, praise God. Praise God. 